Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Li Pingchen, your host for today's episode. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Wen Sun about his book, Global Medicine in China, A Diasporic History. This book was published by Stanford University Press in 2020. In 1938, one year into the Second Sino-Japanese War, the Chinese military found itself in dire medical straits. Soldiers were suffering from deadly illness and were unable to receive blood transfusions for their wounds. The urgent need for medical assistance prompted an unprecedented flowering of scientific knowledge in China and Taiwan throughout the 20th century. Wen Sun draws on archives from three continents to argue that Overseas Chinese were key to this development, utilizing their global connections and diasporic links to procure much-needed money, supplies, and medical expertise. The remarkable expansion of care and education that they spurred saved more than 4 million lives and trained more than 15,000 medical personnel. Moreover, the introduction of military medicine shifted biomedicine out of elite urban civilian institutions and laboratories and transformed it into an adaptive field-based practice for all. Universal care, practical medical education, and mobile medicine are all lasting legacies of this effort. All right, this is a brief introduction about the book. Now let's hear it from the author. Dr. Sun, welcome to the show. Thank you, Liping. Thank you for inviting me to the show. I'm very excited to be here and to share my thoughts about my book. All right, so before we talk about your book, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your research interest, or anything you would like to share with us? Yeah, hi, I'm Wayne Sun. I'm an associate professor in the program of the history of medicine at the University of Minnesota. 
And my research interest is really in the history of medicine in China and Taiwan in the 20th century. I'm interested in the ways in which the diaspora have come to shape medicine during this particular period of time. And my new research really focuses on the history of health insurance in post-war China and Taiwan, which I'm happy to talk about at the end of the podcast. So thank you for having me today. All right. So, uh, so with that, how do you start this book project? Yeah, this book project really comes out from my dissertation, which I did uh, my PhD at Princeton University. And so I was very interested in looking at the Chinese diaspora and their involvement in China. And what I found was that uh, there were th these individuals, including Wu Lianda, Lin Keshen, or Robert Lim, and Lin Wenqing, or Lin Bun King, who became quite central in medical institu institutionalization and reconstruction in China in the 20th century. In a sense, no one has looked at that before. And one of the things that um, was supportive from my graduate institution was the resources that enabled me to undertake a multi-country archival research, which enabled me to trace the ways in which a diaspora moved around the world to try to get resources, to recruit people, and to establish these very important medical institutions, especially during Second World War, to save lives and keep China at war against the Japanese. Yeah, so as you mentioned, this diasporic network that of resources, of uh, professionals, and also how they mobilize uh, the different uh, fundings and uh, education strategies that they have. And we will definitely talk more later, uh, chapters by chapters. But first of all, uh, maybe some of the context for our listeners today. So uh, this book, and we have some keywords here, diaspora. So can you tell us a little bit about Chinese diaspora? Yes, I'm happy to. You know, uh, the office is Chinese, really were ethnic Chinese that were born abroad or spent most of the time living abroad, really referring to the Chinese in the first in the late 19th century and in the early 20th century. And I talk about the overseas Chinese in a context of medical history. And, you know, historians Philip Hume, right, uh, who is a scholar of overseas Chinese, Chinese history, he argues that many of the overseas Chinese were glad to leave behind the quote Qing officials from whom so many emigrants have been glad to escape from, unquote. However, my book shows that there was a group of diasporic medical elites. So I talked about Li Bunking, Ulienta, Robert Lim, Yi Jian Long, Helena Wong, Adelin, and so on and so forth, who work hard to promote biomedicine and Western science in China. So, for example, Robert Lim, who was the son of Lim Bunking, is the main protagonist of my book. He was born in British-controlled Singapore, educated and taught at the University of Edinburgh, and conducted postdoctoral research at the University of Chicago. In 1923, Robert Lim left Chicago to head the physiology department of the Rockefeller-funded Peking Union Medical College in Beijing, China. In 37, he was recruited by Chiang Kai-shek, who was the leader of China at the time, to head various military medical organizations during and after the Second World War. And so one scholar that really inspired me in terms of thinking about the overseas Chinese and the Chinese diaspora is historian Shelley Chan. Shelley Chan's insights on how the Chinese diaspora, quote, operated as a process, a strategy, and a paradigm to engage change with global dimensions, unquote, was profoundly important for my work. 
Her approach helped me to think about how the diasporic medical personnel maneuvered China's tumultuous history, marked by imperialism, total war, civil war, and ultimately reconstruction and revolution. And as you mentioned just right as I talked about, to make biomedicine work, I really argue that the members of Chinese diaspora drew resources, ideas, and support from their contacts in international organizations and universities. They tap into diasporic organizations and native place connections in Southeast Asia, Americas, and Europe. It helps them to deal with a myriad of local actors, ranging from diplomatic homeland, Chinese politicians, local elites, recalcitrant donors, unhappy family members or quarantine patients, students, civil servants, and many others to make biomedicine work. And one of the things that I really emphasize in the book is how they were, became successful in establishing a military medical complex during the Second World War, drawing on their pre-war experiences. So I'm happy to talk more about that. But really, thinking about the overseas Chinese in terms of their ways in which they were involved in China, and to move away from sort of the patriotic paradigm, right? The idea that these overseas Chinese became interested in China, China because they were patriotic. Rather, I see their intervention in China as sort of extension of their professional medical training, right? They were able to utilize the resources in China to implement many of the medical policies that they thought would help China and, of course, later Taiwan. So thank you. All right. And... Uh... Thank you for introducing this uh, network, but also, as you mentioned, you sort of uh, engage this diasporic paradigm, but from other different dimensions. So uh, 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 this is from a professional uh, training and also to promote and uh, to uh, educate the uh, biomedicine uh, practice in China as well. But uh, with this biomedicine, uh, the development and expansion of it as you uh, research in your book, is in close relation to war. So, uh, and you mentioned the military medicine. So I was just wondering, can you tell us a little bit about what is military medicine? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for your for your question. So really, you know, the book from chapter two to, to four really emphasizes the ways in which the overseas Chinese, really led by Robert Lim, came to help to establish this wartime military medical complex comprising of you know, really three key institutions here. One is the Chinese Red Cross Medical Relief Corps. The second is the Emergency Medical Service Training School. And number three is the first Chinese blood bank. And these three institutions, you know, as I argue, train more than 15,000 medical personnel and save more than 4 million lives, preserving China's ability to defend itself against Japan. And this kind of expansion of medical care really challenges some of the World War II historiography, right? That stress is kind of a China which is suffering and chaotic. I mean, I think that's really part of the story, but I think central and sort of hidden to previous historians is the fact that this great expansion was not done uh, solely by the people within China, right? But a lot of these overseas Chinese elites, but also, as I talk about in chapter two, many of the drivers, the technicians, the medical personnel came from Chinese in Southeast Asia, uh, pr principally Malaya and Singapore, but also a lot of Chinese Americans and Canadians also signed up for the war effort which is really the focus on chapter three of the book. So one of, one of the things that I really try to emphasize is that the history of military medicine in China, and to some extent later Taiwan, 
cannot be separated from the broader histories of the diaspora. Both of them are intimately connected in terms of thinking about that particular history. Without the diaspora, there would not have been military medicine. But without military medicine, the diaspora would not be able to wield their influence and their ideas and their biomedical practices as much as they would like to. So in a way, both military medicine and diasporic histories are intricately related in my book and I argue in really kind of mid 20th century Chinese history. Thank you. Right. And then specifically, as you mentioned, this is not just this kind of national or nationalistic framework, but this kind of global perspective and also, you mentioned this kind of transnational, but also a mobile and also a transpolitical framework in this uh, expansion and also their intervention in modern Chinese um, medicine field. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so with this, uh, we talk about a little bit about the Second World War or so and also uh, Robert Lin. But um, I want to start with the pre-war history, and this is uh, especially mentioned in your chapter one. So this is pre-war. So uh, this is before the uh, Second World War, and at that time, um, China was uh, still a dynasty. So this is where we already see some Chinese uh, overseas Chinese physician already started to uh, uh, contribute to the medicine development in China. So can you tell us about some of the early strategies? How did the overseas Chinese physicians contribute to developing biomedicines in pre-war China? Yes, thank you. Um, so I really start the book with looking at the history of diasporic Chinese involvement in medicine before the Second World War, really emphasizing three important historical actors. One is Wu Lianda, right, uh, which is well-known, right? And the other two people, as I've said previously, is Lin Bun King, and Robert Lim, right? So one of the things that I try to do in chapter one is to compare and contrast these different diasporic Chinese involvement in China and to sort of make an argument about the continuities and changes in terms of medicine from the pre-war period to the wartime period. And so one of the things I try to discuss with Wu Lianzhe too is, you know, a lot of people have written about Wu Lianzhe, many historians of medicine, you know, he's a very popular figure. And over the years, there's a sense that, you know, some historians argue that he is overemphasized in the early histories of Chinese biomedicine during the pre-war period. And what I really try to argue is that Wu Lianzhe is really important in that his diasporic identity and his international strategies really helped to push forward the anti-plague measures that he was trying to promote in pre-war China. So let me explain what I mean. So Wu Lianzhe, um, one of the things that Wu Lianzhe tried to do in Manchuria, as most people would know, was to fight the plague, right? He was appointed by Yuan Shikai. And the story was that he, he looked at uh, the bacteria under the microscope he was able to fight against uh, sort of a more miasmic uh, version of the disease or more rat-based, you know, transmission of disease. And so, you know, he, he kind of was kind of th thought about as kind of the beginner or the origin of these scientific medical developments in pre-war China. But what I really try to argue here is that his international strategies, particularly organizing the International Plague Prevention Conference, he was able to solicit many of the uh, people from abroad, 
you know, from all over the world, Austria-Hungary, Southeast Asia, and all over the world to come to this conference, including his chief critic, which is Kita Sato uh, from Japan, who is a very famous bacteriologist. And I show in the first chapter how before the conference, Kita Sato really didn't like Ulienta and the Chinese. But by the end of the conference, he was so persuaded by Ulienta's ability, for example, to uh, to support Kita Sato during the entire meeting, even giving him uh, sort of the limelight during the conference. Ulienta's uh, you know, kind of discussion about how the China, China really fought the plague in a very assertive and uh, concentrated way, which is not the impression that the foreigners, right, including the Americans, the Russians thought that the Chinese were doing. So Ulinda was able to leverage on his identity, right, as a Penang-born uh, overseas Chinese who studied in Cambridge, so he was fluent in both English and Chinese. He had these international connections with the British representatives in China, and so he was able to pull off a great conference, right, that everybody thought, you know, was unexpected, you know, nobody expected the Chinese led by Wu Lianda to, to have any success in the conference, but they really, uh, his op Wu Lianda's openness, cosmopolitanism really brought people to him, and so what happened, you know, as I tried to talk about in the book, in the first chapter, was that he was able to uh, raise a lot of money and gain a lot of support from international folks uh, for his North Manchurian Plague Prevention Service, which began right after the conference in 1911. It began 1912. And really from 1912 to 1927, right, where Wu was in Manchuria, he was able to fight many of the infectious epidemics outbreaks at a time by leveraging from a lot of support from the Japanese or the Russians, right? The Japanese and Russians did not like the local people, but they kind of came to like Wulienta. So I think what I try to argue in this book is that the, his diasporic identity and cosmopolitanism really made an impact on how he generated these resources to set up the North Manchurian Plague Prevention Service. Right. And Robert Lim in the pre-war period, right, had less resources, right? He was an employee of the Rockefeller, Rockefeller funded Peking Union Medical College. He tried to diversify the Peking Union Medical College by hiring uh more Asians, right? He was really dominated by white, you know, physicians, right? Mostly from the United States. And so he tried to diversify the hiring of the Peking Union Medical College. He tried to make teaching more palatable to a larger audience. Um, and in fact, when the war broke out, he tried to persuade Peking Union Medical College to move to southwest China to resist the Japanese. The PUMC did not do so because they felt that they didn't want to be overly political. But the long story short was that, you know, in a way, Robert Lim's efforts in World War II was continuing some of the stuff that Wulinter already were doing in the pre-war period, even though Robert himself, you know, was fairly limited in what he could do in the pre-war period. So sort of looking at the sort of international strategies in the context of the pre-war period, but also thinking about where Robert Lim uh, situated himself in the pre-war period, it enabled him to enact some of these strategies that Ulienta was promoting in the pre-war period for the wartime period. So thank you. Right. And then... As you uh, as you mentioned that there are uh, the different dimensions. The mobilization is an international conference, but also the fundraising and then for international uh, support as well. And we also see that in the uh, education dimension that to diversify the hire, but also make 
teaching more accessible to uh, more uh, students. And uh, we see, as you mentioned, Robert Lin is uh, in some way continue, if not expanding uh, the, uh, the these different uh, multiple dimensions. Mm -hmm. And now with uh, Robert Lin, and we will be uh, particularly talk about his uh, wartime uh, project and development of the biomedicine in China as well. And uh, with one specific uh, institution, uh, the group that is a Chinese Red Cross Medical Relief Corps. So can you tell us a little bit more about how this um, group uh, embarks on the expansion of medical relief across China, especially during wartime? Yeah, thank you for your question. You know, really chapter two, right, is where a lot of the action really happens, you know, with Robert Lim um, taking a group of PUMC medical workers, right, uh, to Southwest China to try to establish this wartime military medical complex. And the Chinese Red Cross Medical Relief Corps, which was, which was began as a kind of independent institution in 1937, was different from the Chinese Red Cross that existed before that. It was a new organization, uh, and as I try to show in the book, you know, more than 90% of the funding came from the overseas Chinese, right? Primarily through uh, two organizations. One is the American Bureau for Medical Aid to China, which was a New York-based uh, Chinese-American organization that sought to raise funds from uh, people in the U.S., both, you know, Chinese-Americans, but also white Americans to, uh, you know, raise funds to support wartime medical interviews, right? Another organization which emerged in 1939 was the United China Relief, which is an umbrella organization comprising of ADMAC, but also many other uh, American-based aid organizations to raise funds for wartime medical interviews. And many of that money came to support the Chinese Red Cross Medical Relief Corps. So one of the things that I try to talk about in Chapter 2 is that these developments, right, that were happening in China under Robert Lin, which eventually uh, saved, you know, more than 4 million lives and trained more than 15,000 medical personnel, could not have been, could not have happened without the support from the overseas Chinese, right? And many of them from the U.S., which has been completely understudied in previous historiography. And the second thing I would say is that the Chinese Red Cross Medical Relief Corps was central in introducing several new medical practices that have not been done in China prior to World War II. Number one, right, is the lousing, right? So one of the things that Robert Lim did was to set up, uh, was to implement the policy of mobile medicine, right? So instead of getting medicine for people to come to you, right? For example, in the US, if you go, if you had to go see a doctor, right, you have to go make an appointment, wait in the clinic, and go see a hospital clinic, right? This is kind of development of 20th century American medicine, right? These big institutions and big groups that kind of dominate healthcare systems. And that was what the China model was, right? They tried to replicate some of these hospitals and Western medical clinics based practices. And what I try to argue in chapter two is that these mobile medical clinic uh, units that, you know, comprise of one or two doctors, a few nurses, and a driver and a technician, right, they will go out into the war zones to help uh, wounded workers and, uh, sorry, wounded soldiers and civilians, right, to help to alleviate their pain and suffering, whether they were attacked by the Japanese or they fell ill. So these mobile medical units were able to survey uh, the people, right? What What is the biggest number of illness among the population? And they found that many of the disease uh, were spread by lice and ticks. And so 
to in order to get rid of lies and ticks, you need to you need to delouse, right? Remove the lies, right? Delousing from these clothes that they were wearing and also to set up mobile shower stations because the soldiers had no access to running water, right? So they use adaptation methods, right? For example, using bamboo uh, sticks to create kind of a showering stations for the workers to use wine vats, right? And kind of trash can-like substance to delouse clothes on the wall front, right? Using sulfur to kill the lice. And so that helped to mitigate the amount of lice transmitted disease, which were very serious uh, on the wall front at the time. So that was one major thing that they introduced, right? Delousing. The second really, you know, thing that they really introduced is kind of uh, wartime, you know, uh, you know, kind of uh, few medicine, right? In terms of few emergency surgery, uh, you know, kind of helping to uh, uh, wrap up wounds of uh, wounded soldiers on the war front, you know, really try to administer medical relief on the war front itself, right? And to set up a system where soldiers which had further complications will be brought to the rear of different units to receive more medical care. And so this enabled the, Chinese, the, the, the Chinese Red Cross to reach a much wider population you know, uh, than previously before. And I try to argue somewhat maybe controversially that these Chinese Red Cross Medical Relief Corps is actually a precursor to what a lot of people argue that Mao Institute Barefoot Doctors, right? The Chi Jiao Yishen, and they say that Mao was the one who thought of this idea to bring medicine to the masses, right? In the 1970s during the Cultural Revolution. And what I argue is that the nationalists, right? And the Chinese Red Cross Medical Relief Corps and Robert Lin were already doing many of these things, right? During the Second World War, just that they were completely forgotten. And part of this expansion, right, was that they also went to assist the Chinese communists in Yan'an, right? So I have a small section in my book where these medical relief corps helped to administer, uh, improve the managerial uh, management of medicine in the caves in which the communists were living in. They helped to faci facilitate safe abortion, try to institute uh, a proper medical system, you know, and, and, and so on and so forth, right? In the communist-based areas. And most people focus on Norma Batum, right? Uh, bai Chuan, you know, for folks, you know, who, are, who grew up in the Chinese system. But really, the Chinese Red Cross were quite central to these enterprise too, right? So number two is mobile medicine, right? Number one I talked about is the lousing. Number two is mobile medicine, right? And number three, right, which I will talk about in the next chapter, is really uh, the, the blood transfusion, right? Enable uh, soldiers to receive medical care if they were shot, if they went under shock because they were shot by an enemy combatant, right? So that these, you know, these three, among many, many others, um, new biomedical practice that they introduced on the war front were really central to expanding medical care during this period. And in fact, one of the things that was remarkable, right, in Lloyd Eastman's, Lloyd Eastman is a historian of Republican China based at Harvard. He's considered one of the most critical early historians of uh, Republican China. Even in his book, you know, he recognizes Robert Lim as one of the few people in wartime China that made a huge difference, right, in helping to save lives. So I think, you know, that that his his contributions were, were quite central. And, and, and from the archival documents that I found, many of them from the his own papers at the academic uh academic uh, uh academic syndica right in the institute of modern history archives they, they really review kind of uh the, this this really important history 
of military medicine during this period. So thank you. Yeah, and then especially Robert Lin as this very significant uh, figure in the development, also expansion of biomedicine in modern China. As you mentioned, first of all, uh, especially this, uh, the uh, Chinese Red Cross Medical Relief Corps, they have most of the funding from the Chinese diaspora communities. And then they also introduce new uh, medical practices, as you mentioned, delousing, mobile clinics, and then also emergency treatment of the soldiers on the uh, battlefront. And they also provide medical assistance uh, to both the nationalists and also the communists. And uh, in addition to all that, also uh, developing the blood uh, transfusions uh, for these soldiers. And uh, so with this, uh, I want to know more. This is in connection with uh, chapter three. In terms of this blood transfusions technology and also the blood bank technology as well. And then so uh, can you tell us how did uh, the Chinese Americans and uh, Canadians they established the first Chinese blood bank in China? And also we're curious about what's the reactions from soldiers and the local people in terms of this blood transfusion practice and also a bank that's not for money before blood <laughs> yeah that's a great question you know really chapter three is uh, one of the chapters i'm i'm always excited to talk about you know which is the history of the first chinese blood bank and this chapter really comes up from a kind of serendipity right so i was doing archival research at the Rockefeller Archives, and I met um, a, a French a French historian working on uh, uh, the history of blood, um, you know, banking and donation in the United States. And he told me that when he went to see the NAACP archives in the Washington D.C., he noticed there were files on the Chinese blood bank, and so this really kind of led to uh, me, you know, going to. DC to look at the NAACP archives, which I thought had nothing to do with the Chinese blood bank. And then I found so many of the resources, right? So many of the files that really underpin this entire chapter. So, you know, kind of doing the, the process of doing research really helps you in a connection to other scholars, really helps you to think about, you know, this particular really, uh, this period of, of history. So really the first Chinese blood bank began uh, in New York City, right, with Robert Lim soliciting uh, financial assistance from uh, the MMAC, which they agreed to. And MMAC actually sent two important Chinese-American slash Canadian physicians, Yi Jianlong and uh, Helena Wong, right, to study under John Skirder. John Skirder was uh, an important hematologist and also a blood bank specialist based in Colombia at the time. And with Charles Drew, right, they really invented the idea of blood banking. The idea of blood banking is that you could uh, draw blood from an individual, store it under certain conditions and use it later, right? Previous to the invention of blood banking, you blood transfusion was basically soldier to soldier, right? During the World War One. If someone was uh, sick, you know, or someone needed blood, you would grab one soldier and try to, uh, you know, poke him and then give from that soldier to another soldier's blood. So, so blood making enabled blood to be processed, to be stored, and to be shipped and to be used when needed, right? So that's kind of the, the power of blood banking. And in this case, the Americans really came up with the idea of plasma banking, right? Which is the idea is that what you actually need a lot in blood transfusion is, so blood is basically comprising of red blood cells, white blood cells, and plasma, right? And plasma is yellow liquid, 
and you if you can dry the yellow liquid, they invent the technology that into a powdery form, and so you can transport the powdery form over large distances, right? In this case, from the U.S. to China, and they just had to rehydrate that plasma, uh, the dried powder plasma, and inject it to a soldier to help to save lives. So you know, in when a soldier gets shot on the war front, whether in China or other contexts, right? What happens is your blood pressure goes down very quickly. And so what you need, you know, at, at that point of being shot when you are when undergoing operation is blood plasma, right? Not necessarily blood itself. So that plasma, which you don't have to type for, right? So whether you're A, you're O, you're B, you could still receive that plasma to help to save your life. So that technology was invented in, you know, early on in the Second World War. And so the, over, the Chinese Americans, you know, really started this, Chinese blood bank in New York City, which was the first desegregated blood bank in America, right? Blood was always segregated and after, you know, really until the 70s in the US. And so long story short, it was a success in the United States. They were able to get support from members of the NAACP, African-Americans, who saw the blood bank as kind of a model desegregated blood bank, you know, and they were able to get support from the Japanese American communities who were eager to prove their loyalty to the U.S. and Chinese Americans community and so on. But when they brought the blood bank to China, it was much more difficult. There was a lack of electricity. You know, there was problems with trying to work with the equipments, right? Because you need kind of technologically intensive equipment, a dehydrator, the autoclave to process all this blood. And there were some problems of... Uh, of uh, of uh, infection because of the of the lack of cleanliness in terms of the blood uh, transfusion technology, but nonetheless they were quite successful in the end because uh, many of the local elites in China, especially students from the north, uh, the southwestern university, right, the National Southwestern University, the Lianda, which was a which was the which was the combination of. Tsinghua, Beida, and some other, and I believe Nankai, right? When they all retreated to Southwest China. So basically the students were the ones that were ready to use and to try these new technology, which enable uh, Chinese and American soldiers really to receive these blood transfusion, mostly plasma, that helped to save many lives. And uh, of course, some of the soldiers uh, did not want to uh, donate blood, right? Uh, which, you know, kind of backing up a little bit, they did not want to donate blood. And so there were, there were many hindrances to the actual construction of blood bank. And you can definitely read more about it in my article, in my book itself. But I really want to emphasize, you know, for the podcast is that uh, these transnational connections and these uh, really could not have been done if not for these Chinese Americans, right? Whose stories like Adeline, which was the daughter of Ling Yutang, people like Helena Wong, Yi Jian Long, these people have been long forgotten, right? But I think they, they were very central. They were very important. They tried to grapple with the multiple te technical and epistemological difficulties by civilians and soldiers in China to try to make the blood bank a success. So, and of course, they, you know, as I, as I try to, uh, Look, you know, look, look in the archival documents. They really save, you know, more than ten thousand lives, right? They were able to get, you know, to transfuse the blood to more than ten thousand soldiers. So I think, I think, I think it was it was quite extraordinary. And the blood bank only kind of functioned in China between forty four to forty five, right? Because the Chinese blood bank began later in the story. So you know, within a year itself, I think it's a quite a remarkable achievement. And as I talk about in the book too, uh, some of these blood banking technology were later brought to Taiwan. Uh, so some of the early uh, s development of blood banks in Taiwan were actually from some of these uh, uh, 
National Defense Medical Center personnel who were connected later to Robert Lim and his colleagues. So I, th I think that's something quite extraordinary about the wartime period, right? Especially with uh, the intervention and the support of these Chinese Americans who were not always successful and often failed in the enterprise during wartime China under very difficult conditions. But ultimately, as I said, the local elites in the university professors and you know, and 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 some of these factors were quite important to making the blood bank work. So thank you. Right, and as you mentioned, it started um, actually in United States in New York City, but yeah. also this blood bank technology. You know, there's so many different uh, process involved. They draw the blood and to store it and to transport it, and also eventually uh, to. Uh, 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 transfused uh, the uh, blood and also the plasma as well. So with all this different yeah. technology and the uh, local elites and then the student, they were actually also uh, involved in uh, this uh, blood banking technology project as well. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. So uh, with this, so in addition to all this new technology, new uh, medical technology that uh, Robert Lin and his team bring to China, they also try to uh, train more uh, local uh, medical uh, doctors, nurses, and personnel. So can you tell us a little bit more about uh, how do they uh, trained the uh, medical personnel and also maybe just uh, the uh, military education, uh, military medical education development in wartime China. Yeah, thank you for the question. Sort of talking about chapter uh, four of my book, when I looked at kind of the history of uh, the emergency medical service training school, but also some of the limits of diasporic involvement, right, in China at that time. And so, you know, in terms of why the emergency medical service training school is really kind of a, a simple reason, right? Robert Lin needed the medical personnel to run the Chinese Red Cross Medical Relief Corps. As I talked about earlier in the podcast, uh, many of the medical personnel came, originally came from the PUMC, which, you know, not even the entire institution, right? Just a th roughly a third of the workers, you know, came with Robert Lin to Southwest China. And so they needed people to run, you know, some of these delousing, mobile medical units, even simple first aid, you know, even administrative stuff, right? So they needed a huge staff. You know, they could compensate with some of that from the diaspora. Right? I talked about the Chinese-American personnel. I talked about some of the, you know, 3,000 drivers that came to drive medical supplies from India and Burma to China, right? So there was, there was some power, right, or human resource that were from the diaspora, which, you know, but they still needed people, right, from 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 China to try to run some of these enterprises. So they set up the emergency medical service training school. At the time, they really needed to churn out these uh, Red Cross medical personnel quickly. So they implemented a program which is very uh, field-based, you know, really very simple, uh, you know, kind of first aid, uh, kind of a three to five months program. And so, you know, in all sorts of kind of basic science and physiology, basic uh, military medical ideas. So just kind of get them out of the field. And what happened was that, you know, the, it was fairly successful, right? Again, the Emergency Medical Service Training School, as I talk about in my book, was almost completely funded by the overseas Chinese too, right? In Southeast Asia, in America, in people raising funds for it in San Francisco, in many of the liberal arts colleges in the US, like Hunter College, there were a lot of different liberal arts colleges which had many Chinese students were also raising funds to help with this enterprise. So, uh, 
in the emergency medical service training school, the three months program did churn out many personnel, right? As I said, almost up to 10,000 or 15,000 medical personnel. But it caught the attention of people who did not like Robert Lim, right? So what happened at the time was that uh, there was a rival organization that was set up called the United China Relief. Uh, you know, EDMAC was the American Bureau for Medicaid in China, was the main sponsor for Robert Lim in the United States. And when United China Relief came up, they wanted to take over the fundraising from this, its uh, component organization, right? So there were about 10 different organizations that joined United China Relief. And United China Relief was kind of in a tussle, in a battle with EDMAC and some of the older fundraising organization. Keep the long story short, they did not like Robert Slim's autonomy and power, right? Which he gained a lot during wartime China. And so as I look in the archival documents with the Edmund archives, they were sending out inspectors to check if Robert Lim was misusing the funds. Uh, they were rallying supporters, international supporters, and Chinese politicians who did not like Robert Lim against Robert Lim, right? So in fact, roughly around 42 or 43, I have to look at the exact dates in my book, but uh, Robert Lim was, had to, I think it was roughly, you know, he had to leave his position, even though it was fairly temporary, right? Um, but he was kind of fired, right, to some extent from his position because of this politicking. So really kind of the limits of the diaspora. Of course, later Robert Lim, you know, came, there wasn't, Robert Lim was too indispensable to the Chinese nationalists, right? So that was very temporarily, you know, he very soon he came back to prominence and to his uh, pre previous position. But I think that this entire story of the, uh, the emergency medical service training school, which many of the critiques saw as too short, right? So what they saw was that this three months program is too short. Look at what the Americans are doing, right? They have a five years program, six years program. How can we send people with only three months training out to the field, right? So they wanted a much longer program. They criticized the program, right? So using the program as a pretext to try to get rid of Robert Lim. And of course, you know, one of the things that I tried to allude in previously in the podcast too was that this, again, is also an important legacy, right? So a lot of people talk about Mao Zedong and the Barefoot Doctors, right? Which are also very lightly trained. Also three months of, roughly three months of training, right? For all the Chi Jiao Yishen and the Barefoot Doctors, which everybody knows well, right? But what I'm trying to argue here is that this story is not a 1970s story only, right? It is really a 1942 story, right? With Robert Lin thinking about the, the this enterprise, right? And just as many people in 1980, right? Deng Xiaoping eventually canceled the Barefoot Doctors program, right? Because he believed that these Barefoot Doctors were poorly trained, right? Only three. So just as Deng Xiaoping opposed Mao's and Zhou Enlai's efforts with these Barefoot Doctors, right? Eventually that ended 1980 in China. In wartime China, right? Robert Lim's opponents also criticized Robert Lim for the very same thing, right? So you can see the sort of legacy of the wartime period into post-war period. And so the medical training itself and education was a political history, right? It was a history of the diaspora, but also a political history that, you know, still continues today, right? What kinds of medical education does China need or the United States or any kind of society? Do you want to have to have a lot of doctors? Right. If you want to have a lot of doctors, sometimes you may have to shorten the training. You may have to implement a more practical, practical kind of education, right, in order to propel many, many more medical personnel. If you keep it expensive, if you keep it elitist, right, you're gonna may may have better trained personnel, right. But sometimes at the expense of people who cannot afford healthcare or who don't have access to healthcare because there are not enough doctors 
and nurses and medical personnel. So it's kind of a dilemma that I try to unpack in the wartime context with China during the Second World War in this particular chapter. Thank you. Yeah, as you mentioned, there are so many different considerations that uh, to think about, especially for Robert Lin for the emergency training schools, the duration of the training, and also the accessibility, uh, whether you open it up for everyone or it's more like a, only for a medical school student or like elitist uh, students. And yeah. as you mentioned, there are all the different challenges um, to uh, Robert Lin's uh, training school, but also, as you can see, there are these uh, legacies in the post-war China, especially during the post-Mao uh, period as well. And uh, with the uh, second uh, Sino-Japanese War ended in 1945, but the Chinese Civil War still continued. And then it continued to 1949, and eventually uh, Robert Lin was uh, sort of moving outside of uh, China and then retreated with the nationalists to Taiwan. So with this move, and uh, I was wondering, can you tell us a little bit more about Robert Lin and also his uh, project in Taiwan and specifically with this uh, division of the Chinese sovereignties and how did this division uh, influence the diasporic Chinese physicians? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um... So Robert Lim, you know, uh, after the Second World War, you know, he tried to reconstruct his wartime military medical complex into what we call the National Defense uh, Medical College, NDMC, right? Med NDMC, which is still around, right? An important institution in Taiwan today, right? Guofang mm -hmm. uh, So, you know, it's still very prominent today in Taiwan. So the Guofang or the NDMC, uh, was established right right after the war with the common you know they basically moved these institutions from southwest china from kunming guiyang, guiyang and so on right to shanghai right where they try to re-establish the ndmc and they were able to do so despite the huge drop in diasporic involvement right so right after the second world war uh the overseas chinese were divided between as you as you point out right between the nationalists and the communists some of the people that supported robert lim like chen Jiagen or tang kaki began to be more sympathetic to the communists um you know and there were the edmac began to scale back its support for the nationalists just because there were much fewer donations from the overseas chinese during this period right because uh both southeast asia was going through decolonization right uh, and uh, american identity became more important right for many of the chinese americans after the second world war so you know with that right the, the sort of slight retreat in diasporic identity and diasporic involvement so but they were able to try to get this going because the Japanese uh, in Shanghai left behind uh, many of the buildings, right? They, so a lot of the Japanese schools, medical schools, such as the Osaka Dental School uh, in uh, Shanghai uh, was empty, right? After the Second World War, they had to move back to Japan or they ceased operation. And so many of these buildings were taken over by the NDMC. So in a way, they were quite uh, there was a fortuitous end of Japanese involvement in China that enabled the NDMC to operate. But by 47, you know, uh, the leader of the nationalists at the time, uh, one of the leaders, Chen Chen, really wanted the NDMC to move to Taiwan. One, for personal reasons, because uh, he was uh, helped at NDMC, right? He personally received help. And I think, you know, in retrospect, thinking about the book project, right, that the nationalists were much, had much more control, I think, over central China, right? People ask, you know, why didn't institutions like uh, the PUMC move to Taiwan? 
or other medical colleges, right? Maybe because they didn't really have a lot of control over this period, uh, over these areas, right? And we do know that, you know, it's not, it's still not written at all in this history, right? But that many of the institutions that moved to Taiwan, like Jiaodong, right? Like Shanghai Jiaodong, they, they were in the Yangtze River Delta, right? Which the nationalists had more power over. That's kind of my guess, you know, thinking about this afresh and anew. But in any case, the NDMC, and take one of the most ambitious moves, right? In fact, they were put on all the medical equipment was put on these boxes to go to Taiwan. Some of the planes that were flying to Shanghai were diverted to Taipei. To Taipei. Um, it was very difficult in Taiwan during the early move, right? There were many reasons for the difficult move. Number one, there was no space for the NDMC, right? So they had to take over some of the um, buildings in Taida, right? Near the Shuiyuan, you know, Shuiyuan district. Uh, and you know, the oral histories that were done in Taiwan really kind of fill the gap of that social history of NDMC early on in Taiwan, when people complain about the lack of cadavers to research on, the lack of food to eat on, the lack of classrooms to live in, the lack of dormitories to sleep in, right? So it was very, very difficult for these doctors, right, to move to Taiwan. In fact, only roughly about a third of the medical personnel and half the students moved to Taiwan, right? So a lot of people didn't, didn't want to go at the time. And so sort of, and also and other tensions that they faced in Taiwan was the uh, identity questions, right, between the Ben Shenren and Wai Shenren. And in this context, what happened was that Robert Lim tried to leverage on his diasporic identity, right, to try to make this work. You know, Robert Lim was uh, his, his, you know, his, his ancestors, right, were from Fujian province. And so he was a Hokkien, right, his, his Lim Mugian was a Hokkien, you know, spoke some basic, you know, Hokkien slash Hokkien slash Taiwi, right? So he was able to communicate with some of the, you know, the pension doctors, which he tried to recruit from Taida, right, to fill the ranks of NDMC, because as I've told you, only one third of the medical doctors came from Shanghai to, tai to Taipei. And so um, it wasn't very successful. You know, it was only partially successful because Robert Lim left pretty quickly and Lu Zhida, which took over NDMC, uh, was less of a diasporic identity. You know, he was he was a he was a Chinese doctor trained in Shanghai from elite family. You know, he's more of that kind of more of a Weishan, you know, person, right, coming to Taiwan. And so he, you know, and Robert Lim wasn't was less like that, right? Because he had this diaspora identity. He lived in many countries, the US, Europe, in Southeast Asia, and met meets a lot of people. So he's not, you know, he's more cosmopolitan, right? More inclusive to some context. So long story short, the NDMC kind of, you know, eventually what happened was that the Cold War happened and a lot of the support from the Foreign Operation Administration by the Eisenhower Administration and together with some of Robert Slim's old friends, right? Like Walter Judge, the Minnesota Congressman, uh, Ed Mag, you know, not, which is kind of diminished but still sort of important and other organizations came to support uh the NDMC in Taiwan, right? So NDMC received a lot of support from the Americans from the 50s and 60s in terms of dormitories that were constructed. Uh, you know, eventually uh, they had a more permanent home elsewhere in, tai in, in Taipei, right? Eventually ended up in uh, present day, what is it, in uh, Neihu, right? Today is in Neihu. Um, but you know, that, that, that long-standing American support because of the Cold War, right? And also because the overseas Chinese because the, the NDMC personnel also made the claim that in order for the NDMC to survive, uh, in, sorry, in order for in order to in order to support the overseas Chinese, in order to win the war for Taiwan or the Republic of China, we need to recruit students 
from overseas Chinese to come to Taiwan instead of Beijing for medical education. So this was the main reason, as I found the archival documents for American support, right? They said that we will support NDMC because they can get overseas Chinese students from the Philippines, from you know other pro-American Southeast Asian states to come to Taiwan to study, right? Uh, medicine. So so I so again the overseas Chinese story continues even when the NDMC moves to Taiwan. But now, of course, moving more from an active agent to more of a subject, right, of that contestation. But still, I argue, was central to making the NDMC survive in Taiwan, right? And in fact, you know, still one of the key, three key medical institutions in Taiwan today, right? Besides the uh, National Taiwan University, but also uh, the Kaohsiung Medical College, right? To some extent, the Chinese China Medical University, but really the NDMC is a very central and important medical institutions in Taiwan today. So thank you. Yeah, thank you for sharing, especially the uh, the process of relocating NDMC to Taiwan, but also the challenges, the, the space, resources, and also this uh, identity, um, uh, a different identity, and also how they uh, see themselves. Uh, uh, as the uh, Chinese subject or as uh, Taiwanese and also or as a uh, diasporic Chinese. So uh, with this, and uh, so that was uh, the uh, main subject for uh, chapter five. And this book has a lot of uh, this kind of rich material and also the archival uh, material. But I was just wondering those kind of behind the scenes. So is there any materials that didn't get to be included in this book project or any other uh, things that you would like to share with us, especially maybe those uh, unexpected material? I think you share about it, about the uh, chapter three, when you talk about the blood bank technology but just want to hear you as a researcher and some of the behind the scenes maybe moments <laughs> the behind the scenes moments <laughs> I, I, I think one of the great joys of working on this project of course all this is in retrospect now that the the book is done uh it's really kind of the multi-country research i really enjoy kind of uh going on the journey with many of my historical subjects right to some extent going you know the ways in which they were in you know i visited places like kunming shanghai you know taipei you know uh edinburgh right when i looked at some of the uh the early education right of robert lim you know going to cambridge university to look at ulienta's documents right and to appreciate you know how much adversity that they actually encountered in their lives and how they kind of, uh, you know, that, that kind of transnational, international journey is, I think, what many of the podcast listeners can allude to, right? The kind of transnational journeys that we make for our research and our lives, the kind of uncertainty, the kind of great difficulty. And for these overseas Chinese from Robert Lim, right, growing up in Scotland, right, in the 1920s, uh, under, you know, facing great discrimination, but also opportunities as one of the most brilliant young scholars in Edinburgh, coming to United States to do a postdoc in Chicago and then finding himself in Beijing in the 20s and then going to fight the Japanese <laughs> and then going to Shanghai and then going to Taipei Can you, and then going back and forth between China and the United States and Singapore. And I mean, I, I just think this kind of an incredible story, right? And I think people don't quite appreciate it. You know, they see kind of still a, sort of a land-based China, land-based Taiwan. And I think the actors, many of these cosmopolitan actors, really made a huge difference, right, 
And as I encountered in my journey, which was very expensive, but fortunately supported a lot by my graduate program, uh, I, I, I think it's quite a remarkable story, right? And I think we reflect upon that moment in time and thinking about how science and medicine is truly global. Right? It's a global enterprise uh, done by transnational actors under very difficult circumstances and how practical science and medical medicine and education is really at the heart of both China and Taiwan, right? In terms of how they think about what medicine and science should serve, right? And, and I, th I think there's some difference, for example, with uh, the US context, right? Where a lot of medicine and science is served for the university, for corporate interests, uh, for, you know, researchers alone, right? That we should do science and medicine for the sake of doing it. But I think for many people in China and Taiwan, they cannot afford the luxury, right? They need to think about science and medicine or even other communities like Singapore, develop, you know, South Korea, Japan, right? They really need to think about science and medicine as serving the people, right? Whether it be kind of the communist style, right? Where you really make it serve the people or you think about it, the kind of overall funding structure, uh, thinking about the epistemology, why I want to be a doctor, right? Uh, is it to make a lot of money? Is it to do basic science or is it to try to help, you know, your fellow family members, right? So I, I, I think I think that's a kind of complicated cultural story, right? That sometimes as historians, we don't examine as much, but I think it's quite important to think about that, you know, as we try to write that kind of histories, right? That take into account these multiplicities. So thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for sharing. And especially as this book is about diaspora history, global network of um, medicine, biomedicine uh, development in China. But as you mentioned, your research is also this kind of multi-country, multi-sided uh, research yeah. as well. This is a global network uh, for uh, you as a writer uh, to uh, write and also to um, uh, complete this book. So uh, with this, and uh, we will move on to the uh, last question for today. This is about what you are working on right now. I think in the very beginning, you sort of give us a little bit teaser about the health insurance in China, but we want to uh, hear you talk a little bit more about your uh, uh, project or what's the other things that you're working on right now. Yeah, thank you for your question. And, you know, um, this project about post-war health insurance in both China and Taiwan really comes out from my research in my first book, right? When you know, I, my first book, I really talk a lot about how medicine and healthcare was financed, right? And I try to make the argument it was, you know, the overseas Chinese were important in either giving the money or soliciting the money, right? Whether it's William in the pre-war period and a wartime period, right? You know, and it sort of ends roughly in the 70s, right? In, in the story in my book. And so what I'm really interested in is thinking about that, you know, continuing that story, right? Uh, in health, and I and one of the impressions that many people have in both China and Taiwan was that medicine wasn't very good before the 80s, but it was very, very cheap, right? And that is not correct, right? Based on some of the preliminary research I've done, both archival and library research, and that both the nationalists and the communists used health insurance as a way to distribute very scarce healthcare resources, right? Where do you, and really to kind of think about who they thought were important for the country, right? I want to emphasize that point. And what I mean by that was that for the nationalists, right? As I try to argue in my new research, um, that many of the health insurance programs, particularly in the 50s and 60s and 70s, were geared towards supporting the white children, 
right? Or the Chinese that came with the nationalists, right? Uh, you, when you compare, for example, the civil service insurance and the labor insurance, right? The civil service insurance, which mainly, I argue, uh, covered the white children, right? Uh, because most of the civil servants were white children. And the reason why most civil servants were white children is because there was a provincial quota set up by the nationalists, right? So uh, basically the Taiwanese or the French children only had a very small percentage of the civil servants because they had to divide the civil servants from all the 32 provinces, right? Which they no longer control. So a huge overwhelming majority of French and uh, white children of, of these um, these uh, uh, civil servants were white children. So anyway, doing this comparison, right? I argue that, for example, the labor insurance covered was coverage of mostly French children were much fewer, right? Fewer coverage, poorer coverage, uh, much more exceptions did not cover dependents, uh, you know, and they had limited coverage, right? So, uh, and they had many bureaucracies to jump through, right? And uh, what the civil service insurance was much more better, right? The Gongbao, Gongwu Ren Baoxian was a much better program than the Lao Gong Baoxian, right? And so, you know, it's kind of, it's the very beginnings of this new project, you know, I'm still thinking about it, but really it's a kind of question of values, right? This health insurance reflects who the state feels is important in this society in which they control. And similarly, on the mainland side with the communists, right? The health insurance, at least in the 50s, were predominantly geared towards the workers, right? Which is classic Marxism, right? You know, classic proletariat, the workers are the most important. Um, but that became contested, right? That the people who were promoting these uh, uh, labor insurance programs in China were sympathetic to the workers, right? Like Li Li Shan, you know. Uh, whereas Mao traditionally, traditionally is much more sympathetic to the peasants, right? We all know that. And so that's the reason why, you know, the Bad for Doctors program was implemented, right? To help the peasants, as opposed to quote unquote the workers. And so it's kind of an interest. I really like this project because again, it's a question about health insurance, it's a question about medical practice, right? Because they really shape what kinds of doctors treat what kinds of patients in both China and Taiwan. Um, but they leave very important legacies, right? So for example, uh, that China today still struggles to some extent with uh health, good health insurance programs because it has scarce resources and who does it want to support in this current Xi Jinping regime, right? Number one. And for the Taiwanese, um, even after the National Health Insurance Program, which is part of the inspiration for this book, for this new book, right? I really liked the National Health Insurance Program. I really enjoy seeing it in action when I'm in Taiwan. But one of the things that's really remarkable for the National Health Insurance Program in Taiwan is that Till the present day, 2023, different occupational groups still pay different premiums, a percentage of their premiums, which I think is a legacy of the 50s and 60s and 70s, right? So civil servants pay, I believe, right, uh, fewer percentage of their premiums than self-employed individuals, right? And when I say self-employed individuals, right, still, I think a large proportion are pension rent, right? So as I think it's an interesting legacy from the pre-national health insurance period that goes on into post, quote unquote, supposedly national health insurance, right, in Taiwan. So you, you can still see some of that interesting discussion and that continues, right? I think in both, uh, both Taiwan and China. So thank you. <laughs>
Yeah, this sounds like a wonderful project, especially as you mentioned, the structure of distribution. There's the medical care, medical attention, medical resources among the people. But as you mentioned, this is maybe in some way, to some degree, also hierarchical as well in terms of uh, which group of people that the state value more and also the legacies that you mentioned. So uh, we uh, look forward to uh, reading more of your work and also this uh, particular project about health insurance in China and Taiwan. And uh, I want to thank you, Wayne, for being on the show today. I really enjoy our conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And it was really enjoyable talking to you. And I also want to thank you, our audience, for staying, uh, staying with us till the end. I hope everybody's taking good care and then see you guys next time. Goodbye.